I wanted to uh, preach on the Gospels, John chapter 8, and I love the Gospels because uh, they're so Christ-centered, obviously. But I'm afraid sometimes we get the Gospels wrong. Uh, sometimes we're so eager to see ourselves in the Gospels that we try to moralize the secondary characters. But 95% of the time, the point of the Gospel, it's not how to be a better husband, it's not how to be more humble. The point of the, the application of the Gospel is... Wow. The Messiah. Like that's, like that's what God wants you to do. God wants you to don't like uh, apply it. Don't think of, just like be amazed. And this passage, John 8, is uh, one of my favorite passages about our Lord. So let's uh, follow along as I read aloud for us. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the living God. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, in the law of Moses, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They are saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. It's actually a very controversial passage. If you note in your text, I have the New American Standard, there's a bracket. In the NIV, there's actually like a line that separates it from the rest of the chapter. In other words, it's contested. And many people will argue that it's not authentic. It doesn't belong here. But I would argue that they, we've misunderstood this passage for so long. Uh, and uh, Eusebius, from the 4th century early church, church historian, Cites Papias in the second century who taught on this passage. So we can be sure it belongs right where it is. And in fact, it's actually a climax of the plot line of John. And if you bear with me, I need to kind of develop the context to really explain what's happening. Because John 8, uh, I don't know if you know, but there's actually fireworks going on. This is the culmination of a, of a like just brewing battle. And so let me, I just want to paint the context real quick, and then we'll do an exposition of John 8. And if you go back, actually, to the very first chapter in John chapter 1, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read these for us. But in John chapter 1, uh, John the Baptist is, you know, he's uh, proclaiming uh, repentance, and he's just hardcore. And, and the Jewish leaders, the establishment, they're like, Who is, what's going on? Who is this guy? What's, what's the big deal? And they go to him. And in John chapter 128, the Pharisees and the scribes, they approached John the Baptist and they asked him, John 121, what then are, what then are you, John the Baptist? Are you, are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. 
are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And this is a key theme in the Gospel of John, this prophet. Uh, What were they talking about when they're asking him if he was the prophet? And that's actually a a reference to a very important Old Testament prophecy. And if you mind me, it's it's a lot of uh, digging in in the scriptures here. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, there is this crucial prophecy of a prophet like Moses, where God prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15, uh, verses 15 through 19, that he would raise up a prophet like Moses. And he would put his words in this Moses-like prophet's mouth in the future. So Deuteronomy 18, let me just, I'll just read it for us. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore. I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. So ever since Deuteronomy 18, the people of God have always anticipated a prophet like Moses who will speak nothing but the word of God, nothing but the law of God. And all throughout Deuteronomy, this is expectation. And and by the end of Deuteronomy 34, in Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 11, uh, the prophet like Moses hasn't arisen yet. Deuteronomy 34, 10. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power, for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So at the end of Deuteronomy 34, they're waiting for this prophet like Moses, and there's two additional characteristics of this future Moses. This prophet like Moses will know God the Father face to face, and he will perform miracles, supernatural wonders, like the miracles of the Exodus. He's going to be a miracle-performing prophet, and he's going to know God the Father face to face. And ever since Deuteronomy, they've been waiting for this prophet like Moses. And of course, in the book of Joshua, who do they think that prophet like Moses is? Joshua. And Joshua looks a lot like Moses, smells a lot like Moses, acts like a lot like Moses. He's all about the law, and he's renewing the covenant. So they thought Joshua was a prophet like Moses. But Joshua doesn't bring about the full kingdom of God. And it turns out Joshua, or in Hebrew, Yeshua, is not the prophet like Moses because he's done it and the kingdom's not fully set. So ever since then, they're waiting for this prophet like Moses, someone who will be like Moses, speak like Moses, speak nothing but the word of God, who will speak to God face to face and will perform the supernatural miracles and signs that Moses performed. And all throughout Israel's history, they're waiting for the prophet like, no, no, no. Samuel? No. Uh, you know, all these, Nathan? No, all these prophets like Moses. Finally, we get to Elijah. And he's looking a lot like Moses, sounding a lot like Moses. And he's performing a lot of miracles. He's manipulating water. And he's feeding the people of God. And he, oh, this is it. This might be it. This might be Deuteronomy 18. And Elisha comes, but no, the kingdom is not fully established. The people are not restored. And so they thought it was Elijah, Elisha, 
But no, and ever since then, they've been waiting for this prophet like Moses. John the Baptist shows up. They think it might be, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? Do you remember 18? The one we've been waiting for? Let John the Baptist know. And from the rest of the Gospel of John, this tension, this question of this prophet like Moses will continue to brew throughout the plot line of the gospel. In fact, in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we have the wedding in Cana. And if you remember the Lord turning water into fine celebratory wine, not grape juice, wine. And, And he turns the water into wine in water pots of stone. And if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that Moses also turned water into blood of judgment in vessels of stone. Very Moses-like miracles going on in John chapter 2. So you're kind of thinking, oh, this this could be the one. And in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, Jacob's well, Samaritan woman, questions whether Jesus is greater than Jacob. And and in chapter 419, she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) You know, like, oh, is this the prophet? Is that Deuteronomy 18? And And she acknowledges in 425 through 29 that he is indeed the Messiah. John chapter 5, the Lord heals on the Sabbath. And this is when the tension comes to a head. Uh, So he's, according to the Pharisees, he's obviously breaking the law of Moses. He's not listening to our regulation about the Sabbath. He's not doing it our way. He's a lawbreaker. He can't be the prophet like Moses. He's, He's a lawless rebel. He's not Deuteronomy 18. And in John chapter 5, uh, the Lord accuses them. You're the lawbreakers. You're the one who misunderstands the law of God. And in fact, in John 5, 46, the Lord says, I'm the, I'm the prophet Moses wrote about. <laughs> so, so, this is, so, so the, the, the religious establishment, you're a lawbreaker. You're not following our Lord. You're not the prophet like Moses. But he's claiming... I'm actually teaching you the true meaning of the law of God. And so this tension, is he the prophet like Moses, Jeremiah 18? No, he's a lawbreaker. Is he really, does he understand the law of God? Is he accurately teaching the law of God? No, he's not that. And this this continues to bubble. So in John 6, the Lord kind of throws off his gloves. And, And if you know the two distinguishing miracles of Moses, you ask any Jew what the two most characteristic signs of Moses are. It was uh, the first sign, of course, was his uh, parting of the Red Sea, Exodus 14. If you want to be a prophet like Moses, you better be able to manipulate some body of water. You know what I'm saying? Exodus 14. And the second characteristic of Moses was his feeding of the God's people during the Exodus and wilderness. You know, the, the manna and the quail. So if you want to have some credentials, if you want to, if you want to fulfill Deuteronomy 18, if you really want to be a prophet like Moses, you better be parting some water, and you better be feeding some people. And in John 6, the Lord kind of throws out the gauntlet. Says, you don't think I'm the prophet like Moses? Well, how about I walk on water? <laughs> so it's like, you know, he's like, like Moses, like parting the water. He's like walking on the water. So he's he's greater than Moses, and he's feeding the several thousands. And it's not like this. You know, it's not like it's like 
buckets and bushels load of food. He's not just a prophet like Moses. He's a greater prophet than Moses. So in John 7, they've had it. Oh, uh, John 6, 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, the feeding, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. This is, this is Deuteronomy 18. This is him. They got it. So in John 7, uh, it's, it's percolating. <laughs> the war is going. In John 7, the Lord heals on the Sabbath. And, ooh, you break our rules. You break our tradition, our Jewish, Pharisaic, purity, halakha. Oh, that's it. And, so it, and, and, he, and the Lord cripples a man. And they start, uh, uh, and, and the people, John 7, 40, this certainly is the prophet. And the Pharisees are like, what are you talking about? He's breaking the Sabbath. And the Lord clarifies, you've got the Sabbath all wrong. The Sabbath is not this outward religiosity. The Sabbath, the Sabbath is a posture of the heart unto God. And, and so it's this confrontation. That's then the context of John 8. This, is, he a, is he Deuteronomy 18? Is he the prophet like Moses? Is he a true teacher of the law of God? Or is he, is he, a, fake, is he a false prophet? And so in, in John 7, 53, real quickly, uh, it says here, everyone went to his home. And let me pause there. Actually, John 7, 53 is part of John 8. And everyone went to his home. This is important. John 7, 37 tells us this was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And really quickly, if you know the Old Testament, Zechariah 14, it prophesies a future day when all the nations will observe the Feast of Tabernacles or booths in Zion and restored Zion. And so, and so every year in the Lord's time, when they observe the Feast of Tabernacles, there's this palpable messianic expectation, Zechariah 14. They're, they're like, their hearts are being like, oh, when is the Messiah come? going to free us from Roman op- oppression. You know, the Roman boot is on our neck. What, you know, and every feast of the- So like John is building, hyping up this messianic context. The people's hearts are beating. And, and so they return home from this last day of the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 8, 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. It's very significant because in Zechariah 14, 4, the prophet Zechariah locates the Messianic king on the Mount of Olives. So, so like they're going home, feast is over, and you know, they're like, the Lord is continuing to show that he's the, the promised Messiah of Zechariah 14. He's, he's acting, he's living out the, the prophecies of Zechariah 14. He's saying, here, here I am. I'm, 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 here. I'm in the Mount of Olives, Feast of Tabernacles, Zechariah 14, come on. And he's, he's continuing to show his messiahship. In John 8, 2, it says this, Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. As the promised prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, the Lord was speaking the words God put into his mouth, Deuteronomy 18, 18. He was teaching the law of God. He was he was acting like the prophet, like Moses. He was teaching the law of God, speaking forth the true meaning of God's law in the temple. And actually, this was in line with another messianic expectation. Uh, if you know Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah envisioned a future time when the law of God would ring forth 
from the temple in Jerusalem, in Zion. And listen to Isaiah 2, verse 3, this beautiful passage. I'm sure uh, you guys know this, but Isaiah 2, uh, verse 3, it says this. Now it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established in the chief of, as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Verse 2, And many peoples will come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of God, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his path. So Isaiah 2, 3 envisions a time when God himself will teach his law to the people who come to his temple. And here indeed, God himself in the person of the Messiah, is teaching forth the word of God from the temple in Jerusalem. This is him. He's, he's teaching the law of God according to Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 51.4, Micah 4.2, and John 8.3, it says, As the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And so, so John emphasizes, Zechariah 14, Isaiah 2, this is the prophet like Moses. And so John's like hinting, this is him. And then he kind of introduces the enemies, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And they come now, remember the, the tension that's brewing. brewing. And, and the Pharisees being the scribes, either, these are the PhDs. These are the official interpreters of the law of God. These are the professors. They're, they're the meticulous experts of the Torah, the law, Jewish law. And you could just see them kind of circling around the Lord and, and, and they brought the experts, the PhDs. It's going down. It's going down. And they, and they bring this woman caught in adultery. Verse 3, and having set her in the center of the court. This is, this is very important. The lines are being drawn. And, and the language John here says of the woman being set in the center the Jewish leaders are now enacting a legal court. They're opening the court of the temple to try a legal case. So, so the line is divided. On one side, you have the Messiah, the teacher of the law, on one side, of, and on the middle is this woman. And on the other side are the Jewish leaders and the, spirit, the Pharisees. And, and it's like this dramatic courtroom. And it's, it's this like, tense legal scene. And, and, and the crowds are all starting to circle and like, oh man, it's, it's going down. And so, so this legal courtroom in the court of the temple is opening and they bring this woman caught in adultery. Verse four, and they said to him, teacher, this woman is caught, has been caught in adultery in the very act. Evidently, the woman had been caught committing adultery and brazen violation of the seventh commandment, Exodus twenty fourteen. According to Deuteronomy 22, 22, the violation for adultery is death sentence. It's capital punishment. So it's an open and shut case. There's really, you can't wiggle around it. In fact, it says, caught in the very act. In other words, there's witnesses. <laughs> we got witnesses. Seventh commandment, Deuteronomy 22, 22. It's open and shut case. You're the prophet like Moses, right? You're a teacher of the law, right? Well, here we go. Here, here's, here's the law. This is the seventh commandment, Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Now in the law of Moses commanded, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Oh, 
this is, oh, you can almost hear like a hiss. <laughs> this is uh, such a, uh, this is, it's clear. She, she's to be stoned. Now here's the, here's the genius of this. If he's compassionate, uh, if, if, he, if he's, if he's, uh, uh, if he's a strict legalist, if he's an originalist, goes by the letter, then, then he's going to lose popular support. He's going to seem cold. He's going to sentence someone to death. And after all, they had a hunch that he was a little weak on the law. Remember in John 3.17, the Lord pointed out to Nicodemus that he didn't come to condemn but to save. And in John 4.18, apparently the Lord didn't condemn the Samaritan woman of her immorality. And in John 5, 12 and 18, uh, the Lord seemed to be breaking law by healing on the Sabbath. This guy was kind of fast and loose with the law. So they had a hunch. Uh, he's probably going try to try to wiggle out of this. However, if he passes sentence, they know that that's then going to ruffle Rome's feathers. Because under Roman imperial uh, uh, authority, the Jewish people could not pass a death sentence. This was the perfect setup. Either answer would lose. You answer one way, you seem cold-hearted. You, you sentence someone to death. You're going to lose your followers. You answer another way, oh, now you're in trouble with Rome. And now you, this is the perfect setup. So the Lord seems caught in a catch-22. You can, you can sense the tension. Verse 6, they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. That was the purpose. They weren't concerned about this woman's welfare. They weren't concerned about the holiness of God. They weren't passionate about upholding the law of God. They were, they were manipulating the law to try to ensnare the Messiah. They, they're trying to trap him. This is, this is heinous. They're, they're abusing the law. They didn't, they didn't care about this poor woman. They didn't, they didn't have no desire to shepherd her heart or restore her back to God, to reconcile her or to lovingly restore her from her wickedness. They're, they're trying to trick him. Verse 6, But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, there numerous, <laughs> a lot of interpretation of what this means. Uh, some people say they use uh, uh, writing the sentence stoning. Others say uh, he was writing the secret sins of everyone else there. Other people say he's writing the Ten Commandments. But it seems like John is not really concerned with what specifically is being written. He's, he's actually focusing on the action. And I'll explain this a little later, but puzzling. What's he doing? What's he writing? Finger? What? What's going on? And John will explain this later. Verse 7. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Far from being fast and loose with the law of God, the Lord acknowledges the sinfulness of adultery. And he confirms the death penalty of Deuteronomy 22.22. He doesn't, he's not, he's not 
He doesn't shy away from the law of God. He's clear. Adultery, death sentence. He confirms the death sentence, the death penalty. He's not a lawless. He's not a false prophet. He upholds the death penalty, the requirement of the law of God. But he clarifies the actual full requirements of a death penalty case. It's like, oh, you guys want to, you guys want to talk the law? You want to talk, you want to talk death sentence, death penalty? And he actually clarifies that there's biblically two actual requirements for death penalty case. First requirement is pure intent, pure intent. And that's in that phrase, he who is without sin among you. And he's not saying you have to be flawless. Oh, you can't judge because everyone's a sinner. That's not what that phrase means. When he says he who is without sin among you, he's referring to Deuteronomy 19, 16 to 19, 21. Let me read this. Deuteronomy 19, verse 16. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord. And if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he is intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So Deuteronomy 19 requires that any witness in a capital case has no malice in their heart, no ulterior motive. Any witnesses in a, corp, in, a, in a death sentence case, their witness has to be without any malice, any, any other agenda. And the Lord calls him out. Deuteronomy 19. None of the witness, according to Deuteronomy 19. You, you need to be without sin. There's, there needs to be no malice, no, no ulterior motive in this death sentence. Requirement two, witnesses were to cast the first stone. Let him be the first to throw a stone. And the Lord's citing Deuteronomy 17, 6-7, which required two or three unbiased witnesses who had to throw the first stone. So you want to talk death sentence? You want to talk Deuteronomy 17? There has to be two or three impartial witnesses. And they are so important. They have to throw the first stone in this execution. And oh, by the way, same chapter, Deuteronomy 17, 4, requires that there's a thorough, impartial investigation. Deuteronomy 17, 4. You shall investigate thoroughly, and if it is true and the report is trustworthy. So, so the Lord's like, you want to do the courtroom and death sentence? Then we got to do Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19. It's important to note that the Lord spoke to the Pharisees and not to the general crowd. Because the Lord is saying, if you want to go to law, if you want to do this, you Pharisees, your hearts need to be without malice. You better not have any hypocrisy because according to Deuteronomy 19, then you are liable to the death penalty. The Lord upholds the law impeccably. You want to do this? You want to go law? The Lord goes to the law and teaches them the true meaning. Far from violating or compromising the law of Moses, the Lord clearly demonstrates the law's actual requirements and true intent. He not only exposes the opponent's incompetence and hypocrisy, 
but he reveals their malice as well. He was indeed the promised prophet like Moses. He was the true teacher and master of the Torah. Verse 8, again he stooped down and rode on the ground. This is, <laughs> real quick, I know time's running out. I wish I, wish I had another three minutes. What in the brown-eyed world is going on? <laughs> this bending, stooping down, writing. What is the Lord writing? What's, what's this mean? What's he doing here? Again, a second time, he reaches down and writes on the ground. And in verse 6, we have to keep, pay attention. In verse 6, the emphatic phrase, with his finger. Because if you're a Jew, if, you're, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that the law of Moses was written by, quote, the finger of God. Exodus 31, 18, 34, 1, Deuteronomy 9, 10. Everyone, any Jew, you ask them, you ask them, where did the law of Moses Moses come from? Literally, that phrase, it was written by the finger of God in Exodus 31 and 34. In other words, John is indicating that the Lord was claiming to have been the actual writer of the law on top of Mount Sinai. That's, that's over the top. John is saying, that's the one who wrote the law on Mount Sinai. Like, <laughs> like that's over the, like, okay, so you're thinking like, oh, Pastor Mike, you're crazy. Like, that's reading too much into it. I don't think so. Because this echo of Sinai is reinforced by the fact that the Lord stooped down again a second time. Because you see in Exodus 34, the Lord wrote the law a second time with his finger after the golden calf incident. In other words, John is saying to us, you want to you wanna try to discuss the law of God? I wrote it. I, I wrote that law on Mount Sinai. He is the finger of God. And so John is like, fluorescent lights, like, this is, this is, this is the lawgiver on Mount Sinai. The finger of, this is the finger of God, Exodus 34. In essence, the Lord's response to his enemies Accusation of violating the law of Moses. How can I violate the law of Moses? I wrote it. He knew all of its requirements. He was the original giver of the law back in Mount Sinai. Verse 9, when they heard it, they began to crawl one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman, where she was in the center of the court, I phrase the older ones in verse 9, he's probably talking about the scribes and the leader of the priests and the chief priests, they, they couldn't put up with the charade any longer. Maybe some of the enemies were thinking about, ah, should I keep going with this hypocrisy? Ah, should I keep, should I keep this charade up, this shtick up? Should we? Like, oh, wait, if, if things go wrong, I will be guilty of the death penalty. So it's our filing out there, beehive. They're leaving. In verse 10, which is probably my favorite, my favorite verse in this passage. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. 
what's going on here? What's, what's the questioning? That's kind of weird. Why is the Lord asking our questions? Where are they? Did no one condemn you? Verse 9, remember Jesus was left alone. They all left. In other words, he was the only one left in that legal prosecution. The whole, the whole, the whole plaintiff, all the key witnesses, they, they literally walked out of the courtroom. He, he's the only one left. And if I remember Deuteronomy 17, you have to have two or three witnesses to try a, a legal case. A death sentence. There's, there's no one here. There's, there's no two or three witnesses. This questioning is vindicating the woman. He's protecting her. He's making it clear by asking the accused questions, by having her answer. He's protecting her. He, he, he's protecting. He's making it a record in the court that there are no more witnesses. There are no more accusations. They have all left the courtroom. He is now protecting her by clarifying that this legal prosecution cannot go on any longer. There's no one else? No one, Your Honor. Has everyone left? Yes, Your Honor. Are you the only one? Yes, Lord. Verse 11. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. He vindicates a moot court. He pronounces her not guilty based on an impeccable application of the law of God. He uses the full law to protect her rights. So this teaches us something important. He teaches us that built into the law of God is the grace of God. Built into the law of God is protecting the rights of the accused. There is a margin for grace. There, there is, you need to be absolutely sure before an accusation. The Lord is beautifully explaining the true meaning of the law. Verse 11, from now on, sin no more. In fact, the intent of God's law is to restore his people unto himself. It's not about manipulating to trick or to condemn. The law of God is intended to restore people back to their creator as a promised prophet like Moses and true teacher of the law of God, the Lord clarifies a central aspect of the law of God, God's desire to restore his people. While the Lord's enemies abuse the law, try to trap the Lord by hastily forcing a death sentence, the Lord skillfully enforced the entirety of the law to protect the accused's rights and to restore her back to God. Is this the prophet like Moses and the teacher of the law of God prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. 
We thank you for Christ, our litigator, our defense lawyer and attorney. We thank you for Christ, our righteous and compassionate judge. We thank you that our king is so concerned with the rights of his subjects. We thank you for the love and mercy that Christ has for those lost in sin. We pray, Lord, that we may respond with elevated hearts of adoration and affection for Christ. We thank you for John 8. We pray these things in Jesus' name.